Do you feel ready to explore? Is it time to search through the universe? Must be a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Welcome to the show. My name's Dan. Thank you so much for being there for listening, following, streaming. This is the place we meet every single week to have a look around the solar system to search all of those science secrets that are lurking nearby. Now this week, as it's December, we're starting to have a look at the science of Christmas. For the next few weeks, we'll take a look at the details behind everything Santa Father Christmas needs to get ready for the big day. Across the world, Old Santa will be delivering gifts to around 1.6 billion children on Christmas Eve. That's visiting over 5,000 homes every second to make sure every child gets a gift. Also, you can hear from a forensic scientist. What's that? We'll find out. She's a genius. She's called Professor Dame Sue Black. And she'll be on to explain why things we find in the ground can be incredibly important in working out mysteries today. And so we need to be able to say with confidence these bones are human or they're not human, because the last thing you want to do is set off a murder investigation based on a seal flipper, because you're never going to find anybody guilty. And I've got your questions to answer, as always. This week, they are on teeth chattering and giraffes. There's all that and so much more. Please, it's the brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's start things off with your science in the news. We're going to have to wait a little longer to send something to space from the UK. The Virgin Orbit Company would you to send a small craft into orbit launched from under a jumbo jet next week. It'll be the first of its kind launched here in the UK, but due to some checks, it's happening after Christmas. Very exciting that something like this is happening from the UK. They've built the spaceport down in Cornwall, and I think this makes sense. You need to make sure everything is safe before you can lift off. Also, the most ancient DNA ever found has revealed what the Arctic Circle looked like when it was warmer. DNA is a sequence of information that makes up every living thing. Experts found some from two million years ago up in Greenland. Greenland today is a polar desert near the North Pole. There's nothing there. It's freezing cold. But the DNA showed traces of reindeer and geese life. Also ocean life, like crabs and algae, were found. It's amazing, isn't it, that we're still finding things today that changes how we see the world millions and millions of years ago. It just makes you wonder what there is that we don't know. And finally this week, an astronomical explosion detected by scientists is thought to have been made by stars colliding with a black hole. A team of scientists from the University of Leicester described the blast as over a minute long and a rare cosmic event. The impact has scattered infrared light across the universe and it comes from a kilonova which is a rare event when neutron stars collide with black holes. I love the fact that these things are happening way out there in space. Stuff's happening all the time and we don't really know about it. I love what could be out there. Let's catch up with another episode of Curious Kate then. Uh, We've been chatting to Kate for the last few weeks, haven't we? She knows all about energy, different forms of electricity, and she's very curious about everything. She asks all the big questions about how things work. in association with British Gas Generation Green. Blimey! Thank goodness my brother Tom is home today. It's very windy and I need him to drive me to my dance class later. 
My bike just wobbles around in all this wind. Hang on. Why is he leaning out of the window? Tom! What are you doing? You can't fly a kite out of a window, you know. I think you actually need to be outside. I'm trying to measure how fast the wind is going with my anemometer. Your what? My anemometer. Look, it's a bit like those colourful toy spinners you get at the seaside. It has four tiny cups which spin around when caught by the wind. And as it spins, it calculates the wind speed. And so how fast is it going? Dunno. It's so windy my hair keeps blowing in my eyes and I can't even read the numbers. Never mind. It's easy to forget how strong wind can be. Remember the damage we saw on telly the other day from that storm in the West Country? All those houses without roofs anymore. That's one of the reasons why electricity companies collect wind power and turn it into electricity. They collect it on huge farms of windmills, don't they? You're almost right. You're thinking of wind turbines. They're like modern-day windmills. Oh, yeah, wind turbines. They have a big fan on top of a pole, don't they? But how do they create electricity? Well, as the wind turns the blade of a turbine, this drives a generator which creates electricity. Which all sounds pretty simple, but there are four main parts to a wind turbine to make it work. First is the foundation. This holds the turbine in place. It has to be securely attached to resist the strong winds, or waves if it's offshore. Then, there's a tall tower to keep the blades and equipment high up where the winds are smoother and stronger, and therefore better for the turbine. Next, you have the rotor, gearbox and generator. The important bits that actually convert the wind energy into electrical energy. And don't forget the fan. That's the best bit. They look amazing when you see them all together. Yes, the fan. And the longer the blades and the faster the wind, the more potential electricity. We saw tons of wind turbines last year when we were driving around Scotland on holiday. Some on top of the open countryside, but loads also out in the sea. So... How many wind turbines do you think it would take to power the whole of the country? Good question. A lot. I read an article the other day that talks about 7,000 wind turbines. But on the basis that the average wind farm has only 50 turbines, that's a lot of space. There's a house down the road with a wind turbine. Does that one count? Nope. That's 7,000 of the largest turbines. However, some homes can have turbines to help reduce their electricity usage and even contribute some electricity back into the grid. That would look amazing. But where could we put it? Hmm. How about in the garden next to the rabbit hutch? Well, you need a space that's free of obstacles, such as trees and buildings. And whilst it can be windy here, it's even better if you live somewhere really windy. To see if their area is windy enough for a wind turbine, you'll find people will put up an anemometer like mine for up to a year to test the strength of the wind. Ah! <sighs> I wish we lived somewhere with loads of space for a wind farm. Hang on! Is that the time? You need to drive me to my dance class now! OK. As long as we can have the window open and you measure how fast the wind is going with my anemometer. Curious Kate, in association with British Gas Generation Green. How curious are you? Test your curiosity at www.generationgreen.co.uk forward slash curiosity. Let's get to your questions then. I love this part of the show. It's where you send in anything science-y that you can't figure out. Maybe it's something you heard at school, something a teacher said, and you thought, is that really true? Maybe it's something one of your mates told you, and you think, there's no way that can be true. Well, come to me. Come to 
yeah, trust the old master of solving science, Dan, and I will figure it out for you. The best way you can send one in is by firing over as a voice note on the Free Fun Kids app. Just record into it, let me know your name, and it'll come through to me like this. Hi, I'm Rowan, and I'm seven, and I want to know, why do teeth shatter when you're cold? Thank you for the question, Rowan. When you're cold, your body's doing everything it can to try and raise your temperature. It makes the muscles all over your body twitch and spasm, which is why you shiver. You shiver to warm up your body. It moves the muscles so they can heat the tissues nearby, which just lifts your whole temperature. It makes you heat up. Teeth chatter as a result of that shivering. It's just what happens when your body is moving to try and get some heat. Thank you for that question, Rowan. Uh, here's someone who sent an anonymous review on Apple. Thank you for this. Make sure you leave your name when you send it to me. Why do giraffes have long necks? Well, that's all to do with evolution. Evolution is what experts think as men, animals survive and thrive and carry on. It makes sure their species are the ones best placed to do well in any environment. It's the survival of the fittest. It's all to do with making the best of any situation that you're in. So perhaps millions of years ago, an early ancestor of the giraffe would have had quite a long neck, bigger than the rest of the animals around, which let it reach food that was higher up on trees that no one else could get. Then it ate well, it thrived, it survived, it passed on its genes to its offspring and its offspring and its offspring, who maybe had even longer necks. So it could reach food that even more animals can't get, which meant that the creature thrived and survived, passing down its genes through generations until the giraffes that we have today. Thank you very much for the question. I don't mind you sending them in as a review on Apple, but really the best way that you can get through to the show is by leaving a voice note uh, on the free Fun Kids app and sending it over. Just record yourself and fire it to funkidslive.com. Let's get on with this week's Dangerous Dan then. Every week we look at the most mean, the most cruel and the most wickedly amazing beasts in the wild. Today we're headed to the jungles and deserts around Africa to see one of the most impressive hunting cats alive. The caracal is a wild cat. They grow to about three foot long. It's not too big. They're a tanned golden colour, which helps them blend in perfectly with the sand dunes all around. They've got these huge ears that stick up and swivel like satellite dishes, listening to the tiny sounds of prey. Their ears have over 20 muscles in them each, so they're incredibly fine-tuned to spot dinner. And what looks amazing, on their ears, the top, they have black spiky tufts of hair which they use to talk to other cats with. They're incredible hunters, the fastest small African wildcat around. They've got brilliant camouflage, very furry feet that makes them nearly silent stalkers. They'll eat anything really, rodents, small monkeys, mongoose or birds. It's when they catch birds that they show how really amazing they are. They've got incredibly strong back legs which let them leap 10 foot high, almost 4 metres off the ground to grab birds from mid-air. They get their hooked, thick claws out, they grip into something flying by and they drag it to the floor. Imagine a hunter like that. You're not safe even if you're in the sky. And that is why the caracal absolutely deserves to go to the top of our Dangerous Dan list. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now you can see the secrets of forensic science this year on your telly. One of the world's leading forensic investigators 
Professor Dame Sue Black will deliver this year's Christmas lectures uh, from the Royal Institution. Now, we tend to talk about this every year. I'm very excited because uh, Sue is on. She's chatting to us. There are three lectures broadcast on the BBC later this year. Uh, Dame Sue, thank you for joining us. So I guess let's start at the beginning. What is forensic science? Ah, well, you see, there is no such thing as forensic science. That's what's really interesting about it. So there is only science. And of course, whether that science is biology or chemistry or physics or maths or whatever it may be, it is just science. So if, for example, you're an expert in tying knots, whether it's a knot in your tie or a knot in your shoelace, if you end up going into court to give your opinion on it, then you become a forensic knot expert. So the difference between, so I always thought forensic sounds uh, like quite gruesome. You hear about it on some of those TV shows, but really it, it being forensic just means it's, it's kind of used legally. That's it. That's all it means. So if you think about the vast array of different sciences that are, sometimes when a court case is going through, um, either the prosecution or the defence side will say, I need an expert who can tell me something about. It might be wave patterns in the ocean. It might be about blood spatter in a, in a crime scene. It might be about fingerprints. It might be about knots. Whatever it is, if there's somebody out there as an expert in it, but it is a science, and you bring them into the courtroom, and in the courtroom what you're trying to do is you're trying to help the most important people in that room, which is the jury, come to a decision about whether the person who's been accused of something is guilty or innocent. And sometimes there are parts of the case where only a scientist can help the jury understand a piece of evidence that's important. Now, in your work, you, you, you've done a lot with forensic anthropology. So anthropology is the study of <clears throat> humans and, and humanity. How important is that forensically in, the, in a court situation? Why is studying humans can be of so much use? Because frequently humans do things and they do things to each other in court. So we're all aware that sometimes, you know, um, we will hear about a murder or we might have somebody robbing a bank. We, we might have, see somebody running away on a CCTV. Anything that involves the human, whether alive or dead, can be about their identity or it can be about their behavior. Um, and our job is to say, who was that person or is that person? So most of the time, forensic anthropology is about the identification of the human or what remains of the human for the courtroom purposes. So a forensic pathologist is medically trained and their main role is to tell you how somebody died and what it was that killed them. Our job is primarily to say, who were you when you were alive? Because if you imagine we find human remains and we don't know who the person was, then it's really difficult to go and find out where they came from, what the actions were. You, can't, you don't know who their family were or their friends or their colleagues. And so we need to know who they were before we can figure out whether what happened to them is necessarily a crime. And if it's a crime, then it's the police job to go and find out who's responsible for committing it. Sue, do you remember the first time that you saw all the different bones of a skeleton? Yes, I was about five years of age. And so my father was a tremendous shot and he would go out shooting rabbits and pigeons and those sorts of things. And so the, I would sit at the back door with him when I was a very young child 
and helping him to skin rabbits and to, to pluck pheasants. And my mother would cook them. And so I had that appreciation of what it is to see the body in different stages. And so I could see what the bones were like. And when I then became a teenager, I worked in a butcher shop. And so I was used to seeing bones from lots of different animals. And then when I went to university, I became a human anatomist. And that was the first time that I saw human bones. And so I was able then to tell the difference between what's human and what's animal, because that's really important in our job. Somebody who's walking along the beach and they see something lying on the beach and it looks like a hand and they phone the police and say, I found a human hand on the beach. Pretty much we can be certain it's not a human hand. It'll turn out to be a seal flipper. And so we need to be able to say with confidence these bones are human or they're not human, because the last thing you want to do is set off a murder investigation based on a seal flipper, because you're never going to find anybody guilty. So how, how do you almost immediately spot the main differences? Say, for instance, between the hand and the seal flipper, if I were to find one on the beach, it might absolutely throw me. I can't tell the difference. What are you and forensic scientists looking at that really lets you know which one's which? So the first thing we'd look at is the fact that we'd identify it's what we call a pentadactyl limb. And that means it has five digits. So pentadactyl means five digits. And there are a number of animals that have a pentadactyl sort of limb and many that don't. So your average horse doesn't, for example, or a cow or a goat, so that we know we've got something that is five. And when you look at the human hand and compare it to a seal flipper, they're doing something very different. A seal flipper is there primarily for propulsion. So you're creating that paddle effectively. So you don't need a thumb. When you look at the human's hand, you want to be able to use the thumb to bring the pads of your fingers together because it's an extra tool that we use. It's a dexterous tool. And so it develops into something that looks different. The seal flipper doesn't have the same thumb. We have a very different thumb. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? Learning uh, about the human body and how we're so like animals. But you can learn loads more about that. Um, Professor Dame Sue Black is doing the Christmas lectures from the Royal Institution. There are three of them. It's on BBC Four late in December. Uh, Sue, thank you very much for joining us. We're in December now, just a few weeks to go until Christmas. And up until the big day, we'll take a look at the science behind Christmas with Santa Mori. It's the science that goes into making sure Santa is ready for the big day. In this episode, he's explaining the facts and the figures of Christmas. Santa Mori Science of Christmas. Hello, Santa Mori here. You know, the one in charge of all the science and technology here at the North Pole. Deep under the pole, my team of elves and I experiment with some of the latest technology behind heat-resistant materials, genetic computing, and warped metrics of time and space. Also, we can improve on the reliability of Santa Claus to deliver presents to children every year. Now, maybe you think that Christmas hasn't got anything to do with numbers, unless you're counting the number of sleeps until the big day. But Christmas is full of numbers. Here, let me explain. Across the world, old Santa will be delivering gifts to around 1.6 billion children on Christmas Eve. That's visiting over 5,000 homes every second to make sure every child gets a gift. With an average of 2.5 children per household, Santa will need to make... Um, 
640 million stops on Christmas Eve. Now, Santa is quite partial to the old glass of milk and a mince pie as he travels around. If he drinks a 200 milliliter glass of milk and eats one mince pie at each home, he will consume, blimey, almost 130 million litres of milk by the time he's finished, enough to fill over 50 Olympic swimming pools. He will also have eaten nearly 40,000 metric tonnes worth of mince pies. To work off these extra calories, Santa would need to walk 1.3 billion miles, which is 54,000 times around the circumference of the Earth. And all of that is after the presents have been wrapped. Now, on average, each elf can wrap a present in 10 seconds. Working on an eight-hour day, we need 3,000 elves in the wrapping department to work for an entire year to get the job done. And assuming that each present needs 80 centimetres of wrapping, we use over 1.5 million miles of paper. And once wrapped, all those presents have to go somewhere. Prior to the big night, we store all the presents in this huge warehouse. It's so big in here that you could fit in 240,000 double-decker buses. So you can see how hard Santa and the elves have to work. So make sure you don't forget that mince pie on Christmas Eve. <laughs> and a carrot for Rudolph. Santa Mori's Science of Christmas. With support from the Institute of Physics, the Royal Aeronautical Society and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash Christmas. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can listen to so many others on the free Fun Kids app, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your shows, and it's at funkidslive.com too. Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. You can listen to us all over the country on your DAB digital radio, on that free Fun Kids app, and at funkidslive.com. And if you're a Fun Kids Podcast Plus subscriber, you'll get it ad-free and unlock loads more bonus content too. Find out more about Podcasts Plus at funkidslive.com.